back. Um, today we are jumping back into the book of Matthew. Um, if, you, if you're new here, this has been kind of our companion book that we have been going through for coming up on two years now. I think we started Matthew in May of 2021. 20, Is that right? Is that two years ago? I'm trying to remember the math now. Thank you. Yes, yeah, roughly May of 2021. So we started back there and we've been slowly progressing through. We made it through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, which was incredible and also the hardest text I've ever had to preach. We went through Revelation as a church and I found the Sermon on the Mount harder to work through. But Jesus is wonderful. He's confronting, he's challenging, he's different from everything we'd expect, but he is so, so good. And so if you have your Bibles, can you open them up with me to uh, Matthew chapter 11? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to be making our way through verses 1 through 15. And so as you just turn there in your phone or in your paper Bible, also, if you want a paper Bible, please come and let me know, because sometimes don't do your devotionals on your phone. It's just a pain in the butt. Get a paper Bible, then you don't get notifications and you can focus. It's so much easier. And if you don't have one, I sound like an old man, but I don't care. Like, if you don't have a paper Bible, come and talk to me. We've got some that we've got just to give away. If you or anyone you know needs a Bible, we would love to give you one of those. So we're in Matthew chapter 11. And so far, what's happened is Jesus has kind of established himself on the scene. He did the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of like the summation of his teaching about the principles of the kingdom of heaven that are coming. And then he went around and did a whole bunch of miracles and has been putting words into practice. And then what we just finished last year was Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus then begins to send his disciples out to go do the very things that he was doing, which was would make, you, make me deeply uncomfortable when Jesus is like, your turn, and you're like, no, please. I'm a pew sitter, very comfortable at that. But for some reason, Jesus always chooses to involve us in his mission. And so we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 11. It says in verse one, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And then when John, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind, they receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Looking out at them, he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes, they're in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I tell you, he's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way before you. And truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all of the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. 
So whoever has ears, let them hear. Let's pray. Jesus, as we listen to your words again today, we pray that you would do only what you can do, that by the power of your spirit, you would, you would speak through them so that they're not just words on a page, but they became life for us, that they form us, that they shape us, that they encourage us and that they challenge us, that they become transformative for us, that your teaching makes its way beyond just our head into our very being. We welcome you and we praise you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So John the Baptist is this fascinating character in the Gospel of Matthew. He, we get introduced to him relatively early on in, in chapter 3. Jesus is going out to be baptized, and, and we hear about John, who's been out in the wilderness like a crazy person, dressed in camel's hair, eating insects. He's like one of those crazy preachers that terrifies you, but you can't stop looking, you know? It's like those videos on YouTube that you're like, I don't know why I'm watching this, but I can't look away. It's like a car crash, and it's amazing. And crowds of people went to go see him. And when he was there, he did not mince his words. Often, uh, we live in a culture where we're, friend, we're afraid to offend each other, right? We want to be very polite and carefree. Can I remind you of some of John the Baptist's teachings? Listen to this from uh, John the Baptist, who was talking to some Pharisees who wanted to see what was going on and were curious. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water and repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in hand. He will clear his threshing fold, his floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Really friendly guy, great at dinner parties, easy conversationalist, right? Fiery preacher. And you know what? He didn't hold back. He regularly was critiquing different structures. He was like the prophets in the Old Testament. That when he looked across the nation and when he saw corruption and injustice, he did not hold his tongue, but he called it out. He called out rulers and leaders. In fact, one of the kings, his name is Herod, he had done some things and he'd married his brother's wife and it was all kind of, you know, rich and famous people do. They get in weird marriages and it's always weird, right? So John, rather than being like, oh, king's going to do what king's going to do, called out Herod publicly for his sin. It didn't go too well for John. John's eventually arrested and put into jail. And so the story that we come to, the question that drives this whole passage is what happens when John, who did everything he felt like God called him to, finds himself behind bars. And he begins to deal with the disappointment and the disillusionment of why hadn't God done what he said he was gonna do? This is John's big question. The ax was there, the fire was there, but why was he still in prison? If God was going to do what he said he was going to do, why is John still behind bars? 
This is one of the most significant and relatable questions in faith. Often in churches, we have this bias towards positivity, I think, where it's like, God is good, yay! God is great, yay! Let's sing about the goodness of God, yay! And if we're not careful, we can kind of get into this like fake spirituality where we always have to pretend like things are good. Like, oh, you know, like you've heard it, like sometimes like, oh, my cat just died. Oh, but God is good, God is great, it's fine. What? You know, I've lost my job. Oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's okay, God is good. I've got a relative who's like this. And they grew up, you know, as a different culture, very Pentecostal. And Pentecostal culture is, tends to focus a lot more on the victory of God. And so often when you're around this relative of mine, and I'm saying relative because they might be watching online. Hi. Um, uh, <laughs> online space is a weird space. Uh, but often, church is never perfect, right? And so my family was a ministry family. And often you'd want to start talking about what's difficult or what's hard. And this relative will always be like, oh no, let's not talk about what's bad. Let's just focus on what's good. Let's not worry about what's hard. Let's focus on the good things. And that's okay, but it's not real, is it? For all of us, we all put our happy faces in when we come in here like we've got our life together. But there come moments in every believer's journey, and I mean this for every believer, there will come a moment where you will be in a space like John where you had ideas and promises about what God was gonna do. You had expectations and hopes of how you think God would work, and then it doesn't work out. And before you know it, you find yourself staring behind bars, wishing for the life that could have been. Does anyone relate to that? If you don't yet, I promise you, there is not a follower of Jesus who has not found themselves struggling with life and faith from behind bars. And so it's from this place that we start this story. How do you deal with the disappointment of when it doesn't happen the way we thought it was going to? So it starts with John, who's heard about this Jesus. Jesus is starting to get a bit of a following now. He's doing all these kind of cool things. And so John then sends out his disciples to go and ask this incredible question, the most relatable of all questions. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Do you know what's interesting? Uh, a lot of the early church commentators struggled with this question. They struggled with how the John the Baptist could ask such a doubtful question. And in their commentaries, they often will try and cover that up. So uh, Augustine and uh, John Christensen, doesn't matter, old people who wrote about the Bible often would say, like, oh, John was only asking this so that his disciples could know the truth. I don't think so. I think John was genuinely asking. Because John knew that Jesus was supposed to be this person, right? Like that's the story from this baptism. Jesus shows up and John's like, oh, you're the guy. In fact, Jesus wants to get baptized and John's like, no, 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 that's not how this is supposed to work. You don't get baptized. You're the, you're the big one. I disappear. And from there, Jesus starts to defy John the Baptist's expectations of what he would do. Jesus gets baptized by John. And then John, remember his prophecy? The, the root is at the axe of the tree. The, the threshing floor is about to be cleared, baptizing with fire. He's ready for Jesus to go and make his mark. Go to Jerusalem and call out Herod, just like John the Baptist did, but this time be successful. But what does Jesus do? Does he go to Jerusalem? No. 
Jesus shoots off in the opposite direction out to the WAPs of the region. He goes into Galilee, Nazareth, Capernaum. That's like the queen coming to visit New Zealand and spending all of her time in gore. You know? And it, you go, yeah, there you go. Can you imagine the Aucklanders? Aucklanders, can you imagine how frustrated you would be? The queen's here. How do we see her? You got to go to Gore. You'd be like, that's a long way. That's what Jesus is doing. He's spending his time far from all the places of power, up in the northern regions with the poor and the needy. That's not what John expected. Jesus should have gone to Jerusalem and called out Herod there and then, institute the kingdom of God that was prophesied, bring the ax. But Jesus is up north. And then Jesus begins to get followers. But we know the story. Does Jesus get the cream of the crop followers? Does he go to the great teaching halls of Jerusalem to get the best students who know the Torah better than everyone? Nope. Grab some fishermen, gets a tax collector. The fisherman hated the tax collector, so that was a recipe for success. He later on gets a zealot who wanted to literally overthrow the government, and then they got to sit in front of the tax collector who was getting money for Rome. He grabs a whole bunch of nobodies and calls them to follow him. And then he begins to do these works of power. Remember, in the Old Testament, you have these prophecies about these works of power. Remember, Elijah calls down fire to consume altars and bulls and incredible miracles. The Son of God, Jesus, begins to go do miracles, but he goes and finds the lowly and the sick, the lepers that no one would touch. He goes and he heals them. The blind who can't see and who are lost, he goes close and restores their sight. He goes to all the small little people that are getting chewed up by the world and he gives them focused attention one by one. Which is kind of nice, but I think if someone were to do that today, I can hear, you can hear the critique right now of somebody saying, oh yeah, Jesus is all right, like he's doing some good stuff, but... Let's be honest. Let's get more strategic with what you're doing here, Jesus. You're the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. There's a whole lot of structural injustice in Jerusalem that you're not dealing with that's causing all of this, but you're spending all your time here at the bottom of the cliff with the least and the lost. And so John is hoping for Jesus to be this big thing that he had hoped for. But Jesus begins to act differently. There's the disappointment. He's hoping for God to be one thing. And God shows up, but God ends up doing a completely different thing from the thing that John the Baptist wanted him to do. There's that tension and that challenge. Listen to this. It's like this, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Jesus brought eternal salvation. Oh, wait, hold on. I'll go to that one in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. But can you feel that tension from John behind the bars asking, are you the one that we should be waiting for? Or should we be looking for someone else who's going to come and save us? Now, here's a very relatable thing. It's really easy to look at the works of Jesus and be like, I'm happy you're doing these nice things. But there are some other bigger problems that you're not addressing. And John's wondering, could we get somebody else? Is somebody else going to come to fix those? Oh, that is relatable, isn't it? I can't tell you how many of us in our journey of faith, we all face challenges and disappointments and difficulties, don't we? And the easiest thing for us to do is to be like, yep, I will go to church where I can learn some good values and I'll make sure I confess my sins so that when I die, I can go to heaven. But these other challenges that I'm working through, 
I'm gonna go need help from someone else to fix these. I can't tell you how many leadership books I've read for the church, because you're a pastor, I have to read like leadership books and talking about leadership. I can't tell you how many times I've read in leadership books this idea of, yep, Jesus will help us with some of our theology stuff, but when it comes to leadership or running the church, let's go learn from Mark Zuckerberg. Let's go learn from CEOs of these big corporations. Like, Jesus, you're good for this, but is there someone else we're waiting for that can help me with these other things? Parents who face difficulty with their children, yep, Jesus is good, we'll pray, but my kid's really acting up, so I probably need to go, is there someone else that can really fix the problem? Jesus is good for these surface things, but I really need help with this other thing. Can you feel, has anyone ever felt like that? It's so easy that we begin looking and hoping for someone else. There's a story that um, one of the commentators tells. Of, he was in Philippines, and he's working with this Roman, um, Roman Catholic priest. And Philippines are facing huge, significant issues. And so he's talking to them about, like, where is God in this, or what are you hoping for? And this is what this, Phil- uh, this Roman Catholic priest says. He says, look, Jesus brought us eternal salvation, but he didn't intend to give a program for our liberation. He expected the near end of history, and he wasn't in the business of giving any political solutions. But on the other hand, Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong, their thought provides concrete scientific means to answer the temporal and not eternal questions of oppressed people. So easy for Jesus to be on the side, a helper person, but the real problems, is there someone else that we could be looking for? So John's sitting with this tension, this disappointment that I think is incredibly relatable for all of us. How does Jesus respond? It's so good. It's so good. Jesus replies, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind have received sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. Such beautiful pictures. Again, John was ready for the kingdom of God to come in big, flashy power to solve all the problems we want to right now. But the way that God actually often works is rather than starting at the top, what does he do? He starts at the grassroots. And he finds the small things, the little people and the lost, and he begins to restore them from the ground up. He begins transforming lives one by one because somehow, for some reason, God knows that the way that everything is going to get overturned isn't necessarily with another strong, big show of power that will kick out someone bad and try to gain power for itself. The way the kingdom of God works has how? Like a mustard seed. The smallest of all the things is planted. And from that grows the bushes from which everyone else can come to find shelter and rest. God finds these small little things to give hope. And what's great about this too, most of us don't recognize it, but you can be sure John did. The way Jesus phrases this, this is incredibly similar to a prophecy that Isaiah gave about the messianic age, about this coming ruler that John had spent all of his time prophesying about. And it comes from Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah is prophesying Israel is in exile. They themselves are looking at life from behind bars of Roman oppression, and they are longing for something different. So Isaiah begins to promise about this coming Messiah, this coming king, and listen to the language that Isaiah prophesies about. In Isaiah 35, it says this, this desert and parched land will be glad. 
The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Listen here. Strengthen the feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and with retribution and he will save you. How will this God come with vengeance and retribution to save you? The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Burning sand will become a pool, thirsty ground with bubbling springs. In the haunts will jackals lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They won't be found there, and only the redeemed will walk on it. And those that the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Beautiful prophecy, hey? Can you hear how the words are almost identical? The blind will receive sight. The deaf will hear. The lame will leap like deer. Jesus, when he says, tell John what you've heard, Jesus is reminding John of what he's actually there to prophesy about. It's so easy when we face disappointment And this is the most relatable thing. When we face difficulty or hardship, when things haven't worked out the way we want to, we often want God to come in with a big swoop and fix it all immediately, don't we? We're facing, we've lost a job, I need one now. Or we're facing a sickness or a challenge, I need that now, our kids are struggling or running from us, we need it to be fixed now, Jesus, we're gonna pray and I want you to be, snap your fingers and make it better. But is that how God often works? Jesus often comes. The kingdom of God comes through these small things, these little spaces. God finds the quiet things that the world ignores and he breathes life into them. He finds the people that no one else cared about or thought about and he calls them by name. He gives them a plan and a purpose and these disciples who nobody would have respected become leaders of a movement that within 300 years overthrows the world's most powerful empire. But did Jesus do it through force and power? No, he did it through peace, love, forgiveness, and hope. Let us not forget that the key way that Jesus eventually fully inaugurates this kingdom in every single gospel, when is the high point of Jesus's ministry? When is the point that we see him most like the king that was prophesied? When is the moment where we see him crowned in glory in all these gospels? When is his victory? It's in his death and his crucifixion. Again, John, this is not what John or many others would have prophesied or hoped for. But this is the goodness of the kingdom of God. So often we want God to give us quick fixes, to do big shows and have it our way. But the danger is our way often hurts us more than it helps us. With every war that is fought, every general feels convinced that they are on the right side of history. And if we can just get enough power and we're in control, then everything will be better. Our our desires are the same for our own life. We want to be in control. We want it done our way on our time frame with what we want. But often when we get that, it hurts us more than it helps us. The goodness of God recognizes that the way the kingdom of heaven comes is God reaches into the very most broken part of our lives 
and begins to resurrect and breathe life there. Rather than putting us into a place of victory, he finds the death within us and brings it back to life. He finds the difficulties that you're facing and he promises that there's hope on the other side. Even if the very worst thing happens, it will not be the end of your story because Jesus himself has gone into death and come back alive on the other side. So even death itself has no power anymore. And so I think we don't get to hear what John thinks after this. All we know after this story is in a few chapters later, we find out that John is beheaded. He never makes it out of prison. But I can't help but wonder if when John heard those words, the eyes of the blind are opened, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, and good news is being preached to the poor, I reckon John would have had hope. Because he knew that what Jesus had come to do, he was going to fulfill. Not through power or might or political force, but through grabbing ordinary people like you and me, breathing life into us, dying for us on a cross and sparking a revolution of love and hope and life that has never left the world the same. Jesus is still, that moment is still the most influential moment in world history. Not through power, but through self-sacrifice and death. This is this wonderful thing. All of us in our journey, your hopes, your dreams, what you want God to to do, at some point, we will all be like John. We will face some disappointment, some frustration that it didn't work out the way we wanted it to. But the hope of the gospel is that God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are higher than I thoughts. He's with us and close to us as we grieve and as we mourn, and somehow through our pain and our disappointment and our frustration, his spirit is at work even there. When he feels furthest, that is when he's often most active in our lives. And so there is hope for all of us. On the other side of this disappointment, life may not have looked the way you wanted it to, but God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. And through the small little things, he will transform the world by the power of his gospel. And so I want to finish today with us engaging in communion. This, again, is just classic Jesus right here. He grabs two of the most ordinary elements of our lives, the bread and the cup that the disciples had done thousands of times, and he transforms these simple things into things of eternal significance. To a people that needed hope and life, to people who were behind bars of oppression and difficulty, Jesus said, come to me. Hear, taste, see. There's life on the other side of death. And God will work through the disappointment from behind bars for something greater and more beautiful. And I want to invite us to this table as Jesus did thousands of years ago. For a lot of us, life might be okay. Things might be working all right. But for many of you, you might be finding yourself behind bars. It might be a significant disappointment that you are facing, wishing that things would have been different. Frustrated that God hasn't worked on the time frame and the scale that you would have liked him to. But Jesus would bring you and invite you back to this table to take these two simple elements, the bread and the cup. And as you take the bread, be reminded that Jesus has given his life for you. And in your disappointment, there are the seeds for something beautiful that God is growing. If you give it time 
and allow him to work not through the big things, but through the small things. And in this cup, Jesus says, this is my blood shed for you. It means that we are never separated from our Father. And it also means that no matter what we've done, whether we've gotten behind bars because other people have done that to us or because we've made our own terrible decisions, we've been selfish, we've hurt ourselves, we've given into our addictions and our slavish desires, and we find ourselves behind bars of our own doing, with the blood, Jesus reminds us that that is not the end of your story. That God has made a way for you to be his son and his daughter, and that will never change. No matter what you do, you are not alone. God is with you. And so if you're facing that difficulty, you find yourself behind the bars of frustration and disappointment, I think Jesus would say, come here and taste and see that I'm good. He is in the business of healing the blind, healing the deaf, restoring the broken, and preaching good news to the poor. He's here for you. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he grabbed these elements and he said to his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he then took the cup and he says, this cup represents my blood shed for you. Every time you eat this bread and you drink of this cup, do this in remembrance of me, knowing that God has given himself for you. And through simple acts of death, Jesus can transform anything. May not be the way we want it or the way we projected it, but he's faithful and he is good. Let me pray and then I want to invite you forward to come share in this meal together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that our doubts and our disappointments aren't something foreign to you. When John asked, are you the one who's to come? Jesus, you didn't shame him. You didn't castigate him, but you encouraged him, telling him, hear and see what has been started by the work you did. And Lord, just like John, each of us will face doubts, disappointment, frustrations. We'll stumble in our journey of faith. But Jesus, I thank you that you don't look down on us and shame us or see us with just disappointment, but your heart overflows with love for each and every one of us. I pray that those, if there are those who are disappointed or stuck behind bars today, God, that you would restore their souls, that you would remind them that you are with them through the broken little things, through the things that no one else thinks are worthwhile, you are birthing new life. And that as we trust you with our lives, your kingdom will come. It'll be different from the kingdom of this world, but it is good. Jesus, help us to enter into that kingdom. In your name we pray, amen.